0: You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net.
1: Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up till that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, come and let us meet together at Heciferim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the works stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answer them in the same manner. In the same way, Samballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says to you, that you and the Jews intended to rebel. And this is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now let us come and take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah and the son, the son of Deliah, son of in the house of God, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a, a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And when I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah the Sambelet had hired him, for this purpose he was hired and I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me bad news, a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Samballot, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets, who wanted to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, good morning. it's great to be with you all. Man, it is especially great to welcome back the gurneys, Brian and Chelsea, who are glad that you're here. Uh, a word of thank you to uh, Robbie and uh, Stephanie, and who else have I? I shouldn't have started in this list of names. Randy. And uh, everyone who jumped in to, to help, it's a real joy. We we've actually have a number of worship leaders in this church, and it's a, a real gift that, that we have that opportunity to be facilitated in our worship every week. Uh, and with that, man, it's a joy to have you back. Brian, thanks for every week, I was just thinking about this as we were worshiping, leading us in what is probably the most important thing we do every week to take our eyes off of ourselves and to fix them on Jesus. Thank you for leading us in that. Man, we're glad that you're back. We pray that your time was uh, refreshing and it's a, a joy to be with you both this morning. Uh, just a, another word of welcome. If you aren't joining us for the first time, we're welcoming Brian cause he's one of our pastors. He's been on sabbatical for the past couple months and uh, opportunity to connect to have them back, but it's also great to have you here. It would be great if you were a guest uh, for us to have the opportunity to connect with you at our welcome table at the end of service. And uh, then just a final word for our people who have been around. Uh, maybe this even is your first Sunday. We hope you will come and hang out with us at membership class tomorrow night. You guys can sign up for that uh, online. So just adding my voice to those. Thank you so much. Uh, Let's pray and dive into Nehemiah chapter six together. So Lord, we now just humble ourselves and uh, prepare to receive from you, from your word. I personally just thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this ancient, sacred, but living and active inspired word and communicating it to your people. My prayer right now for myself is that I would also receive your help if we've just, as we've just sang that my help is from the Lord. I pray for your help uh, to not just rightly communicate the words here, but that your spirit would move in this room in such a way that our spiritual eyes, the, the eyes of our heart, as Paul would call it, would be opened to, to see and rightly understand your word would be open to know you more deeply, would be open to understand, um, understanding our calling uh, and our purpose as a people more clearly. Lord, would you help me and would you help your people receive what you would have them to hear this morning? God, be glorified in our midst as we focus our attention on your word. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So it's been awesome the past two weeks. I think we consider church plants all the time because we're a church plant and that's the work we want to be a part of. But just in the midst of things not working right in our society over the past few years, to recognize that God is still working through planting churches in our region. And so it's been a joy over the past two weeks to have some church planters come, preach God's word, and share a little bit about what they're doing. And now I wanna get back into the work that God has called us to do as a church, looking here at Nehemiah. So let's just set the context a little bit. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in this book. What's happening in the book of Nehemiah? Years before Nehemiah, God formed a people, the nation of Israel. And they were made to do what we just finished doing. They were made to worship God. They were, besides him, was God exclusively. And to give worship to anything else besides him was considered idolatry. And what we see happening among the people of God over and over again is rather than worshiping the God who made them, delivered them, and called them together as a people, they're worshiping and serving the idols of the surrounding nations. And so after warning, after warning, God exiles his people into the land of Babylon. Uh, Over about an 80-year period, the uh, Persian Empire took over uh, Babylon and was now the dominant uh, group in Control them, and God sovereignly works through uh, the the leadership of Nehemiah to uh, bring back the people to the land in which they originally dwelled. Uh, this need for the people to come back together was truly uh, the need of a miracle. All of the pieces that would be needed to fall into place in order for the people to be reestablished as a nation was far beyond their ability to do, but God miraculously provides. He miraculously provides a leader in Nehemiah to lead the effort. He miraculously provides all of the building materials, resources, authorization, uh, in order to begin this building project under the king of Persia. Uh, He provides the people in order to to begin working on the wall, many of whom were probably not construction workers, but nonetheless, they labored to to see the wall be uh, reestablished and they build through a lot of obstacles. It's not just like it was a challenge to kind of get it going, but as they build, they put it together and everything's fine. They've got obstacles left and right. They've got people threatening them. Uh, They've got uh, 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 the issues of their own sin. We uh, addressed the issue of oppression that was taking place in the land uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, There's a lot of obstacles that they have to fight through in order to rebuild this wall. And this morning, what we really hit on this sort of last little stretch before the wall is complete. It's almost done, and they've got one more obstacle to overcome. What is that obstacle? The obstacle, I'll just summarize it through another chapter, distractions, distractions. As we read through another chapter of complicated names and places and titles, what we see kind of happening all throughout this chapter is clamor and noise and threats and false reports coming at Nehemiah left and right, trying to do what? Trying to distract him from the work that God had called him and the people to do. So let me just ask for uh, those of you in this room, and I'll give you just a second to think about it. What are the distractions that plague your life? What are the distractions that enter into the call that God has on your life and seek to draw your attention away? We all face distractions. They're a regular part of our life. There are minor distractions and there are very serious distractions. When I think of minor distractions, I think of uh, a number of years ago. I think I've shared this story a while back, but it just sticks out of my mind as a distraction. I had, uh, you know, decided that I was going to get in great shape by purchasing the DVD set, uh, Insanity. Did anyone do that for like two weeks and then quit also? Uh, uh, And then, you know, turn in the DVDs to Goodwill or something like that. Uh, You know, I I bought it and I was like, you know, a couple workouts in and during the the time my wife was pregnant and so she wasn't participating in it with me. And as I'm following JT and just sweating all over the floor and suffering through it, my wife said I could share this. She was sitting on the couch next to me, not just with ice cream, but with a carton of ice cream as I was trying to stay focused on the work ahead of me. Now, uh, fair point, do I also eat out of the carton of ice cream? Yes, I do. And do I have the excuse of being pregnant to do so? No, I don't. But nonetheless, that was an obstacle, a distraction in that moment as I was uh, you know, trying to do this. And so I persevered through for two more workouts and then I was done with that, uh, that miserable DVD series. Uh, so that's like, a, my, right, like little things that aren't all that significant in our life. But then there's distractions that, that we face that can compromise things that are deeply important Imagine with me, just take a second and, and, and consider 99 of this. And we're, most of us in this room are guilty of it. Like 99% of the things that come through on our phone can wait, like 99% of them, 99.9% of them can wait. And yet we will risk our lives, the lives of other people driving, maybe even the lives of our family or children through distracted driving because we think that whatever it is that's on our phone simply can't wait. It, it really is absurd that, that we you know are, are so uh, prone to doing that. I fall into it sometimes, I'm sure uh, many of us do. Those are the serious distractions that don't just get us a little bit off course. Those are the kinds of distractions that might allow us to compromise the most important things in our life. And those are the kinds of distractions that I think Nehemiah chapter six would have us give our attention to this morning. And brothers and sisters, whether or not you drive distracted in the car, all of us at times will drive distracted through life where we just go through the motions of filling our life with pleasure hit after pleasure hit, Uh, glance at screen, Netflix binge after Netflix binge, whatever we think will entertain us. We just live our lives so often distracted from the deeper questions like, what on earth are you here for? Why has God given you this life and put you on this earth? What is your purpose and the design for which God made you? So many of us just distract ourselves from those deeper questions. We get so focused on entertainment or media or just anything that makes us happy in the moment without asking some of those deeper questions. What am I called to and what might distract me or pull me away from that calling? What Nehemiah is gonna do for us this morning then is, is set an example of someone who's left and right on their calling with distractions coming at them left and right. And my prayer for you this morning is sort of twofold. Number one, that you in this gathering would be reminded of what on earth you are here for, that, that you would leave this place more aware of the purpose that God has on your life And that you would leave this place more ready to do some battle against the distractions that would lure you away from your purpose. And so that's my prayer for us. Two kind of areas that I wanna consider together with you this morning. Number one, I wanna consider with you just a phrase that's in this passage that also applies to us. I wanna consider with you our great work our great work. And then number two, I want to consider with you uh, a couple specific distractions that would seek to lure us away from our great work. Our, our great work, our great calling, and a couple things that would, uh, w- would seek to uh, uh, deter us from the calling that God has given with us. Let's get ready to focus on that. First one, our great work. So, Chapter six, Nehemiah continues to be hard at work. They are at the final stretch of this construction project and some distractions begin to step in uh, to pull him away from what he has been called to do. Let's read verse two and verse three one more time together. Nehemiah six, verse two, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, here's the key phrase that I want you to hear. I am doing a great work. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Here's distractions coming at Nehemiah, seeking to pull him away from the great work to which God had called him. And we're gonna see this again, not the word distraction, but the idea of it down in verse nine. Describing these different voices coming at Nehemiah to pull him away, it says, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hate work, drop the work and it will not be done. So Nehemiah is called to a great work, rebuilding the wall. The wall was important because it would establish the people of Israel uh, as, a, as an entity, as a nation. It would protect them from uh, their enemies, and it would also give them an upper hand over the surrounding nations and the enemies that were there. And so you can see why God's enemies are trying to put a stop to this. This is going to give Israel the other hand, uh, the upper hand over them. And so Nehemiah continues in the great work that God had called him to in the midst of these distractions. Nehemiah was tempted with distractions from his great work. Here's the question that I want to ask you. Are you even aware of a great work that you are called to in order to be distracted from? Let me ask that one more time. Do you even have a great work in your life that God has called you to, to be distracted from in the first place? Nehemiah was hard at work at the call of God on his life. Some of us may be a step or two behind that of even being aware of the call that God has on us as his people. Because once again, uh, as Nehemiah was distracted from his calling, some of us are just distracted in general. We're not distracted from anything specifically. We're just going through life, checking in, clocking in, clocking out, uh, uh, entertaining ourselves time and time again. We're just distracted in general. Are you aware this morning of the call that God has on your life? Is there even anything to be distracted from? Or are you just distracted in general? I pray you would leave this place once again, aware of the calling that God has on your life. Now you may look at the story of Nehemiah and think to yourself, yes, he had a great work. All that was going to impact really kind of called him specifically and he was building this wall that was gonna impact so many people and he kind of had this national spotlight. Like I see how he has a calling on his life or maybe how like missionaries or people who are, you know, out there like doing God's work somehow have a call on their life. Uh, But I don't know that I have a call on my life. I don't know that I have a great work that I'm called to. What I wanna reflect with you on for just a second is that if you are in this room and you would say you have experienced the saving grace of Jesus, great works are a central part of your salvation. Let's just reflect briefly for a moment on the relationship between works and our salvation. Let's just do a little bit of theological reflections here, because there's a couple ways that we can get pulled off course here. Just like Nehemiah could have gotten pulled off course from what he was called to, there's a couple categories that we can fall into as it pertains to works and our faith in Christ. What's the first road we can fall off? One would be called legalism. Legalism is the belief that in order for me to have a right relationship with God, I sure better have a good work like Nehemiah because he is going to accept me and let me into heaven on the basis of my works. That would be the first false view. That somehow our works, our doing, our praying, our serving, our obeying is the thing that makes us right with God. But we know that it is by uh, grace through faith alone that gives us a right relationship with God. That would be one wrong view, legalism. The other wrong view, and you'll be quizzed on these at the end of the year, so just you know, make sure you remember these words, antinomianism. What is antinomianism? It's a word that means against the law. And what it means is because God's loving, gracious, and forgiving, what we do does not matter at all. Sure, we should try, but at the end of the day, whether we obey or not really is inconsequential. Whether we have good works in our life or not don't really matter at all because God's loving and accepting and and our works don't matter. That also is a wrong view. Here's saved for. We are saved apart from our works, but we have been saved for good works. We have been saved apart from our doing, but a result or a necessary consequence of our salvation is walking in the good works that God has for us. As the famous theologian, as we've quoted him before, this is such a great quote, we are, uh, it, is, it is faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is never alone, Said John Calvin. It is faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is never alone. It is accompanied by, as Nehemiah describes, good works. Now let's consider just a couple verses that capture this so well. If you have your Bibles open still, turn on over to Ephesians chapter 2 and let's read verses 8 through 10. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Scroll on over there. It says, The best news in the world, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That is the foundation of your relationship with God. You have been saved by his grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, capture this, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by our works. We're actually saved by the works of Jesus. But when we experience his saving work in our life, we become a people devoted to good works. I'm so glad we read Titus earlier this morning. It captured again the first part of this. Let me read the first part of it and then what follows behind it. Titus chapter three, I'll just read it. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the whole. That's verse 4. Verse 8 describes what that regeneration, that renewal looks like in our life. Verse 8 says, this, this saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God, capture this, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Brothers and sisters, don't believe the false idea that you're here to just exist pay the bills, and maybe give some money so that the professionals can do the good works. We have been saved for good works, for God to carry out his purposes in and through us. Now, there's another challenge we face when we read about Nehemiah, and it's this. Man, his calling was so clear. Like, the need was obvious. A wall needed to be constructed. They needed a leader to kind of help facilitate that. Nehemiah rose to the occasion, and he had these very specific instructions to carry that out, and so many lives were impacted through that. How am I to understand my sense of calling or my works? Well, maybe in the specifics, Nehemiah's great work looks different than yours, but generally speaking, you and I have the same calling on your life that Nehemiah did. Can I share with you what that calling is this morning? It's not complicated, but we lose sight of it so often. What is your calling, your purpose in this life? You were put here on this earth to glorify God. What is the great work that you're called to? What is the great purpose for which you have been made? To glorify the true and living God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism makes things so simple for us. What is the chief end of man? What is your end, your purpose, your calling? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does it mean to glorify God? There's a lot of kind of avenues that we could talk about this morning, though I, I wanna focus on is this. To glorify God is to reflect your life, display his character through your life onto his creation. That's how you glorify God. We glorify God by reflecting his character on his creation. You can think about the entire creation and specifically the part of creation that you've been entrusted with as an art canvas where God has designed it to display his glory. And who has he created to to help facilitate that? Well, people made in his image. When the Bible says that human beings are made in God's image, it doesn't so much mean we like look like him physically, it means that, that we are to image him, that we are to be like a mirror that looks at God's character, looks at, at who God is, and then reflects that onto his creation. Don't, don't we even say that, that flattery is like the highest form of praise or something like that? Repeating someone, um, uh, imaging them, copying someone is one of the, the highest ways we can praise them. One of the highest ways we glorify God is by imaging his character in whatever little sphere he's called us to. That's your purpose. That's your calling. Whether you are building walls like Nehemiah, planting churches like the people we've heard from in recent weeks, uh, designing websites, changing diapers, teaching children, gardening, whatever sphere of creation that God has put you in, your great work is to glorify him in that space. So... We, we glorify God by coming to the thing right in front of us, the place where he's put us, and asking the simple question, what would God do here? Knowing what I know about God and having gotten to know him a lot better by looking at his son, Jesus, what would Jesus do in this specific situation? That is our great work. That is our great calling. Now, in order for you to do that, you've got to get to know God a little bit through the person of Jesus of our life, to to get to know him and then to do what he would do in the specific places of our life. So let's just talk about a few areas, just closing this point briefly. Um, First of all, do you view your current station in life as the place that you are called to reflect God's character? Do you view the place that he's put you? What is God's calling on your life? Well, where, where has he put you right now? Do you view that place as a calling to show off what God is like there? Man, what would it look like, first of all, at home to reflect the character of God? For those of you who are married, first of all, Yes, marriage is a gift to be enjoyed, but make no mistake about it. It is a calling in which you are called to display the character of God to your spouse. Uh, it is a calling in which we're conformed more to the image of Jesus. As we walk through a, with a spouse, through the difficulties of marriage and the conflicts, that is a calling from God to show off. What would God do in this marriage? That's your calling at this moment. Parents with little ones, Do you view the little ones entrusted to you as a calling from God on high to show those little ones, this is what God is like. This is God's character. This is God's glory. And then do you view yourself as called to then send forth those little ones into the world, showing the world what God is like? I was just reflecting on this real briefly this week that so often the Bible describes children, specifically in the Psalms, in terms of their potential, consider this. The Bible describes children like olive shoots, not plants, not trees, shoots. That's a little bit, which means, uh, will they become a great olive tree? I don't know, how will you foster and mature that in your home? Uh, Children are, are, are described as arrows in the hands of a warrior. They haven't yet been sent out into the field. Will they be sent out to make some sort of impact? Do you view the children, what will the parents do to help foster and facilitate that kind of impact in their lives? Do you view the children in your home as a calling? Do you view the way you relate to your own parents, whether you're young or old, as a place to image the character of God? What about at work? Do you ask the question when you show up at work, how would Jesus design this website? How, how would Jesus manage this team? How would Jesus relate to this difficult coworker? How would Jesus change this diaper or teach this lesson? What, what would he do? How, how would he do that? That's what it looks like to live out your calling. How about in the church? What would it look like to image Jesus in the church first towards outsiders? What does Jesus do when he sees people far from God? He invites them in, he draws them in. Uh, what, what does uh, Jesus do when he sees a need among his people? He steps in and fills it. Where might God have you fulfill your calling to image Jesus in the church by finding somebody that needs a meal, a word of encouragement, sometimes sitting down together in the Bible? What needs are present in this body that you can image God on his church by displaying the character of Jesus? What about in the context of our flaws as a church? What does Jesus do when he sees flaws in his church? Gets frustrated and shops elsewhere. When Jesus sees flaws in his church, he dies. He dies. He dies to himself so that those flaws could be filled. How might you die to yourself for the sake of the church? I'm just giving you ideas this morning, brothers and sisters, for you to recognize that you're not just here to entertain yourself. You should have a calling to be distracted from in the first place. That calling may look different than Nehemiah, may look different than the person next to you, but it's all the same at the end of the day. We've been put here on this earth to glorify God. So having discussed our great work, our great calling as God's people, let's then shift our attention to some in this passage. So some deterrents, they are present here in this passage. So uh, first of all, we could say this broadly speaking, with every great calling will come great distractions. Many of you know me, I'm probably the most distractible person in this church. I'm so easily distracted in all kinds of settings. But it's important for us to recognize if we're called to do anything, there will be distractions. As God entrusts a, a responsibility to Nehemiah to carry out his calling in the world, God's enemies begin to, to come to the table and seek to pull his attention from it. All throughout this chapters are examples of people trying to pull Nehemiah away. If we are called to something great, if we have a great work, it will be followed by great distractions. So it's just helpful, number one, to just be on guard with that, okay? but But I wanna talk about a couple distractions that I think are powerful for us. They were powerful for Nehemiah. He had to overcome them in order to fulfill his calling, two of them. The first one you might say is just a pastor like bending the passage to try to fit something in like modern terms. But listen, Nehemiah says there's nothing, or sorry, Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. The same temptations we face, they faced back then. What is the first distraction that I see in this passage? Believe it or not, I see social media in this passage. Hang with me for just a moment, okay? So media, social media is social. So first of all, it involves people. And media, it's a way of communicating information, all right? Well... Here's what's happening in this passage. First of all, there are these little people called messengers. Isn't it ironic that on your phone, your greatest distraction is called messenger? There are messengers coming from God's enemies seeking to distract him, sending him varying headlines and fake news and so forth, varying things trying to, to, to distract him through messengers. And then, of course, if you wanted to send information back then, no email, you'd pull out some papyrus and a little feather and you'd write a letter. Well, Nehemiah has a full inbox. You could say Nehemiah has mail coming at him left and right from people notifying to distract him. There are messages and letters and people notific- notifying him, uh, to- seeking to deter him from his calling. Now, whether you want to call that social media or not, that's up to you. What's undebatable is that probably the most significant distraction we face in our lives right now is in fact Media, social media. Uh, social media is going to be something that is going to pull us away from the calling that God has on our lives. Um, Let's consider it for just a second. Many of you saw uh, the movie, or how many of you saw, let me just ask, the documentary, Social Dilemma? Uh, it came out like a year ago. Now leave your hand up if you did everything you said you were gonna do after watching that. Yeah, so we we got sucked right back in, even though we saw it. And they made a very interesting observation. There's only two industries that call their their, uh, their consumers users. Uh, one, one would be drug dealers. Drug dealers call their consumers users. And the second would be like app designers and, and iPhone designers. They call you a user. That's, that's, that's how they think of you. Uh, I think the irony is, is worth considering. There's something connected to the way that we get addicted to drugs and the way we get addicted to our phones. They have a powerful ability to captivate our attention. We'll be staring at it, sometimes for hours, neglecting the greater things that God's called us to in our life. You know, 20 or 30 years ago, the thing that, that people got addicted to and pulled years off their life was cigarettes people would smoke cigarettes and they would lose years as a result. In our day, it's not cigarettes anymore. It's, it's our phones. And while they may not like numerically take years off of our life, make no mistake about it, we are losing years with the amount of time that we spend looking at our phone. And I'm saying this as one with you in it that needs to give this some thought and some consideration. There This phone, these apps, uh, these varying forms, we need to be powerful ability to pull us away from the work that God has called us to and we need to be aware of them, simply put. And I just wonder thinking of the things that God has called us to, if we were to just be honest with ourselves and just look at maybe the past few months, maybe the past few years, year with COVID, how many times have some of us in this room missed the mark on God's calling on our life because we were staring at a screen instead of fulfilling some opportunity to glorify him in the world. Like how how many of us maybe at some point in the last year should have had somebody over at our dinner table and instead we were interested in what CNN or Fox News had to say that night. We were just dialed in and that's how we spent our evening. How many of us maybe in recent days have needed to be praying for someone struggling Instead, we were scrolling. How many of us could have been spending some time getting to know the character of God more deeply so that we might reflect his character in the world. Instead, we were on two hours of reels, nonstop, just watching them. How many of us needed to be wrestling with our kids on the floor, but instead we were debating or looking at some debate with people we'll never meet and are just completely irrelevant in our life. Social media, a very real deterrent that would pull us away from our calling to glorify God in the world, There's another one here. It's a little bit more obvious. And that is this fear of man. Number one, social media. Number two, massive distraction from God's call in our life is fearing people. It is put on repeat throughout this passage. Watch first of all in verse nine, for they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. Again, down in verse 14, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to do what? Make me afraid. And then we didn't read this this morning, but look on over at verse 19 in chapter six as well. And they spoke of his good deeds and sent letters and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to do what? to make me afraid. Fear of people is a powerful deterrent to keep us from the great work that God has called us to. Ours is probably different from Nehemiah. Nehemiah was faced with the threat of death from people. We are more likely faced from the threat of being disliked. Regardless, that fear of either death or not having someone's approval can work powerfully in our lives. We often worship and serve the thing that we fear. In the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch, he says the following. He points out that we all have to have an ultimate fear, an ultimate fear. And whatever we fear ultimately will control our lives. We will serve and worship the thing we fear because of the consequences of uh, the consequences, or that thing will give us something that we need. So we fear something because we're afraid that it might take something away from us or not give us something that we need. For so many of us, what we need is to be liked, approved of in the eyes of people. And fearing losing that will have a powerful effect of deterring us from the things that God has called us to. Do you deal with fear of man in your own life? In that book, When God is Big, when people are big and God is small, it just gives these kind of categories maybe for you to do some evaluation with. Number one, peer pressure, just kind of caving when you get around a certain group, that could come from fear of man. Another thing that can come from fear of man is being overcommitted. You just wring your life out to the last drop, why? Because he can't say no. Not because you really even wanna do the things you say yes to, you just don't wanna get disapproval from saying no, so you will just load up your schedule, be overcommitted from fear of man. Do you some, and you just are con- yourself constantly, you end a social interaction or something and you go home and you just are constantly replaying it. What if I said this differently? Oh, I had this perfect line I could have dropped there. I wonder if I sounded stupid when I said this. Do you just replay your interactions that could be from fear of man? Uh, Do you have a hard time saying the hard thing when a hard word needs to be said and you just find your way to tiptoe around it? Do you have a hard time saying the hard thing? Or this is maybe the biggest and most important one. Can you be honest with people in the church, in your discipleship group, about your own sin struggles in life? Or are you more concerned about what the people in your group will think than what God thinks about your current sin struggle. Some of us may be more comfortable in our sin with God's disapproval than we would be of walking in the light because we're more afraid of what people would think than what God would think. Man, whether it's like Nehemiah with the, the, the prospects of death that he had or just being disliked, thought less of, the fear of man can have a powerful effect to pull us away from the things that God has called us to. So just in closing, how do we overcome the fear of man? Really the fear of anything. I know it's not enough to just tell you, don't be afraid. Don't worry about what people think, no big deal. We're, we're too enslaved to it for, for that to be enough. How do we overcome the fear of man? Well, when we have a right fear of God, all of our other fears shrink down to proper proportion. When God is big, people become smaller. So our solution to our enslavement to people's opinions, again, isn't just saying, don't worry about it. Our solution is having a bigger view of God. In the book, uh, Rejoice and Tremble on the Fear of the Lord, Michael Reeves says the following. How can the fear of the Lord free us from our anxieties and our fear of man? In Exodus, which he says, the fear of the, of the fear of the Lord acts like Moses' staff in Exodus, which swallowed up the other staffs of the, Egyptians magi- the Egyptian magicians. As the fear of the Lord grows, it outgrows, eclipses, consumes, and destroys our rival fears. When God is big, all of the little things that we fear begin to get swallowed up by his bigness, and they are of little to no concern to us anymore. Let me just read this one more quote from Ed Welch and we'll take communion together. The same books on when people are big and God is small. Listen to what he says in closing. All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They've grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Since there's no room in our heart to worship God and people, can't worship God and people, you gotta fix, pick which one. Whenever people are big, God is small. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not people. The way you overcome the fear of man is standing in the reality of who God actually is, standing in even the language of fear before the God of the universe, looking to him and saying, you are glorious, you are awesome, you are worthy of my attention and devotion, not them. And the best possible place to get a big view of who God really is is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And maybe coming to the communion table has become monotonous for you, just because we do it every week. We do it every week very intentionally. The best place to see the bigness of God is in the elements that we put as a church family. Because as we take those elements, we are drawn to the foot of the cross and it reveals some fearful realities about God. Number one, what the cross reveals to us is the fearful reality of how God truly feels about our sin. That God is not shrugging at our sin or sweeping it under the rug. You wanna understand how God feels about our sin, even specifically our idolatrous worship of people. How does he feel about it? In order for us to come out from under his wrath for it, his son, his son, Jesus Christ, had to go through the most excruciating form of death any human has ever experienced. That's how God feels about sin. You wanna know how God feels about our sin? Man, stand in fear of what he did to his son in our place. But if we just stopped there, we would have the wrong kind of fear for God. Because as we've said before, any kind of fear of God that draws you away from him, that's the wrong kind of fear. Any fear that draws you towards him, now you're walking in the fear of the Lord. Because the cross doesn't just tell us how God feels about sin, the cross also puts on broadcast his love for sinful people like you and me. They would say, yes, you are sinful. And yes, this cross is what you deserve, but I am so overcome in love for you that I will stop not short of putting forth my son, my perfect son to hang up on that cross in your place. Now we're in a place to recognize God is awesome. God is majestic. God is fearful, but I'm not afraid of him. I'm not standing at a distance from him. I wanna get close to him. Because any God who would be willing to sacrifice his son for me, that's the kind of God that I wanna stand in awe of, that I wanna serve. And so as you get ready to come take the elements this morning, what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Take those elements to, to your seat and stand in awe, stand in fear of the God who loves you so emphatically that he put forward his son to die in your place. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ. The forgive on a human form, he took on a body just like you. The blood symbolizes the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have to be afraid at all. No matter even how you've sinned this week, you don't have to be afraid at all because the wrath against your sin has been satisfied. So come on forward and come into God's presence. Remember those realities when you take communion this morning. And if you're here this morning, You're in a place where you're far from God. You do not believe the gospel of Jesus. You don't believe that he died for you. We believe that this meal is for those who have put their faith in him. But maybe you're at a place this morning where you are ready to receive that sacrifice that Jesus gave for yourself. I wanna pray over you now if that's the position that you're in. The way we take communion here, you can hang out in your seat for a moment and reflect on what we've talked about. Whenever you feel ready, come on forward to the table. The elements will be handed to you as well as the word of what Jesus has done for you. You take them back to your seats and at any point you feel ready, you can take those elements and then join us in worshiping. Join us in standing in awe of the fearful God that we serve. So let me just pray for all of us now and we'll come and stand at the foot of cross at these tables together. God, I begin by just praying for those in this room that are far from you. Would you by your spirit, by the lyrics of these songs, um, by the prompting and convicting of your very presence in this room, just draw people to yourself. Our sin might be great, your sacrifice is greater. Would we lay down our sin at the foot of the cross this morning and take on forgiveness, take on redemption, take on a new life. Lord, I pray that you'd deliver us from the fear of people. I pray they'd get real small. I pray that people would get real small this morning as we look at how big and glorious and awe-inspiring you are. So here we come, Lord, to the foot of the cross. Meet us now as we take these elements together in Jesus' name.